my view, of course, is, is that Zwingli is the person who really creates reform tradition. But he dies. He's, he dies relatively quickly. He's a reformer only for about 10 years. The movement then, as you spoke about a few moments ago, passes to a second generation. And of course, the dominant figure of that second generation is, is John Calvin. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine an associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. I read a lot on the Reformation, and those who have listened to the Credo Podcast know that because we have had a number of episodes over the years on the Reformers. In fact, uh, some of my favorite episodes have been on the Reformers. The 16th century, of course, is uh, such a fascinating period, in large part because uh, many of our listeners are Protestant, and so I imagine you are listening in to better understand your own history, perhaps even your own Protestant identity. But when we go back to the 16th century, of course, not everything is entirely uniform. Uh, We are aware of the beginnings of the Reformation, say, in Germany with Martin Luther. And oftentimes we are drawn into the mature developments of the Reformation in the second generation with, say, a second generation uh, reformer like John Calvin, for example. But sometimes a figure like Zwingli and the Swiss Reformation as a whole gets lost in the shadows. Uh, Perhaps it's because so much attention is given to someone like Luther at the genesis of reform or someone like Calvin um, coming into the Reformation as it's already in motion. And uh, lost in the shadows can sometimes be figures and individuals, uh, pastors and theologians an entire um, movement like the Swiss and, and its uh, group, its churches that uh, sometimes get overlooked. But believe it or not, actually, some of these individuals and churches, uh, individuals like Zwingli, are entirely crucial, uh, even foundational, if we could be so bold, to say that they are foundational to the beginnings of, of what we now call the Reformed Church. So much of what we see in uh, the Reformed uh, wing of the Reformation, well, it finds its inception in some of the Reform movements and decisions and controversies in the life of someone like Zwingli. And it's for that reason that I am thrilled to have on the Credo podcast Bruce Gordon, who has actually written not only a biography on John Calvin, but he's also written a recent biography with Yale University Press called God's Armed Prophet. And of course, uh, those who are familiar with the Swiss, may that, that title may resonate uh, be, because the biography, of course, is on Zwingli and his contribution to the Reformation. 
Many of you know Bruce Gordon from his many books. Perhaps you've picked up his biography of John Calvin, or maybe you've read uh, his smaller book on John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, But uh, you may have picked up, if you've taken a class on the Reformation, his book, The Swiss Reformation. And I am just really excited to talk to Bruce Gordon today because his new biography on Swingley, it really builds on the foundation he's laid in so many of his previous books. He's Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale University. And Bruce, well, let me be the first to just say uh, I read this book this biography early on, uh, an advanced copy of it. And immediately, uh, not only did I find myself just unable to put it down, but I also uh, found myself returning to chapters I read to reread them in order to explore not just uh, the life of Zwingli, but to try to understand how the Swiss Reformation, uh, how it how it actually took flight. So, Bruce, I'm just so grateful to have you on the Creative Podcast to talk about Swingley. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to 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 be here and uh, and to talk about Swingley because um, he has often been the forgotten figure of the Reformation. I suppose the first question I should ask you before we get into the li- his life and uh, so much of his contribution is is why why do you think and there's probably many reasons, I suppose. But why do you think that's been the case? Why has he been either forgotten or a bit neglected at points? Yeah, well, I think that, as you say, there there are lots of of reasons. He his reputation is 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 problematic for ways that we might want to talk about. He he dies in battle, which is um, very difficult to explain, very problematic for a church. Luther, his contemporary. Um, lives this longer life. He dies in his bed, surrounded by weeping friends and family. He has the life more or less of a of a saint. Um, John Calvin dies in his bed, again surrounded by friends. And in his in the biography that his friend Theodore Beza writes of him, of this beautiful moment when Calvin passes into the heavens. Zwingli is a very different story. He <laughs> is cut down in a battle. Oh. That's a hard story to make a hero mm. out of. But it goes it goes beyond that. Um, uh, my view, of course, is, is that Zwingli is the person who really creates reformed tradition. But he dies. He's, he dies relatively quickly. He's a reformer only for about 10 years. The movement then, as you spoke about a few moments ago, passes to a second generation. And of course, the dominant figure of that second generation is, is John Calvin. Uh, Calvin becomes a, a Protestant after Zwingli's dead. But, you know, from his time in Geneva from 1541 onwards, he uh, alongside Heinrich Bullinger in Zurich, who is Zwingli's direct successor, these are the two figures who most uh, significantly developed the re- reform tradition into an international movement. So beyond the Swiss lands, you know, stretching from Hungary in the east to Scotland uh, in the west, the Low Countries, Germany, and then, of course, you know, through through the Netherlands becomes a kind of global faith. So, and that name, that faith becomes associated with Calvin, and even assumes the name Calvinism. So that's one reason that it it 
it, you know, we think about the Reformed tradition in terms of, of Calvin and Calvinism, but it, there's, there's, there's also other reasons. Calvin himself was extremely reluctant to talk about Zwingli. He, uh, without doubt, read Zwingli much more carefully than he ever admitted to, and he certainly inherited some very significant doctrines of the Reformed tradition from Zwingli. We can talk about this, the covenantal tradition, the sacramental uh, tradition, the notion of the church, other distinguishing uh, qualities of the Reformed tradition. Calvin doesn't invent them. He inherits a theological tradition which largely comes from Zwingli and some of his contemporaries. But because Zwingli was so locked in this fierce, almost vicious battle with Luther and Lutherans over the Lord's Supper, Calvin, who wanted to bring together the Reformed and the Lutheran together, knew that he could never mention the name Zwingli because that would that would enrage the Lutheran opponents. So he felt that Zwingli was a name he couldn't mention. Mm. So that that uh, as a result, Zwingli was this difficult figure to 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 talk about. So for many in the Reformed tradition in the 16th century, it was better just to not mention him. Wow. I, you know, the controversy that surrounds him, um, you know, the, the angle from which you just explained it, um, it, it really does give, it sheds whole new light then on really why Calvin is so conflicted at times. Uh, because, yes. uh, yeah, you're right. You know, he, it's, he's not unaware. Uh, he's, and, and even his own theology is not coming out of just nowhere, you know. But no. uh, at the same time, there are these reasons, as you mentioned, why he feels conflicted and and doesn't feel like he can even mention his name, uh, and and at least for for uh, you know his his own dialogue with many of the Lutherans. Well, I suppose we should maybe back up and ask the question: How? Because even though he does not live long, um, here he's dying at the just the beginning of the fifteen thirties. Uh, at the same time, he has this rapid development that takes place going back to really the 1510s, 1520s. So help mm-hmm. us understand this because it it seems to occur within a matter of two decades. And take 1510, for example. Here we have this younger man who is um, in the 1510s, he's beginning to wrestle with Goodness, everything from the politics, uh, Swiss politics, as we might call mm-hmm. it, to where exactly his religious or theological commitments lie, either with the papacy or with, as we get into the 1520s, in uh, what becomes uh, very much the Reformation itself. As you look at his life, where do you put your finger and and say, okay, here's where we begin to start, we, we start seeing some of the the seeds of what will become uh, the more mature or later Zwingli. Yeah. Well, that's that's a a fascinating story. And and there are various parts 
to it. But I really would like to emphasize a point that you make here, which is the extraordinary speed with which all of this happens. Mm. You know, if we're going to speak about Zwingli as a reformer of the Reformation, you're really, you're beginning to talk about 1522, 1523. And he's dead in 1531. This doesn't even last a decade. Mm. And yet a tradition emerges in in that period his own uh, development in in terms of faith and as a christian again is evolving very quickly mm. it, it takes root in his uh, education it takes but it really goes back before that to his own birth in a mountain valley in the eastern part of switzerland Zwingli and his peasant background, that shapes him through his whole life, this deep love of his people, of his peasant tradition, and his deep love of creation. He grows up in one of the most spectacularly beautiful areas. It was very poor. It was very poor. But he grew up in the mountains. And if you read his writings, the images of mountains and valleys and creation and uh, run through it again and again, but also his notion of these people, these peasants who work the land, they are sort of God's honest people. So so the, the, the beginnings of it are right there from the start of, of who he saw himself as being. He's extraordinarily uh, gifted as a, as a young student. He learns music. Music becomes an incre- incredibly important part of his life. He's famous for not allowing music in church services, that's a, a different point. But he was himself an extraordinarily gifted musician. He played mm. 12 instruments, he composed music. So that's part of his youth, which becomes formative of his career. He's, as I say, a brilliant student. He goes to university, he studies theology, he becomes a priest at a, at a young age. He goes into, again, a remote part of a mountain area of eastern Switzerland where he serves as a priest. But there he gets caught up in the mercenary services. This is where the Swiss young men are being uh, recruited to go and serve in foreign wars. And the area that he was a priest in, many of the young men did this because there was nothing else to do. They lived in a kind of subsistence farming area. There was no work for them. This was a chance to 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 earn money and to to get away from where they were growing up. So many of them joined the armies. Zwingli goes as a pastor with these armies down into Italy. He experiences the horrors of war uh, in this period, which traumatizes him and shapes his character. So this is all unfolding very quickly. Then he returns as a priest and he becomes completely enamored of one of the great figures of the age, Erasmus of Rotterdam, who is in Basel, who's teaching that the classics of of ancient Greece and Rome are not uh, simply pagan learning, but this that this that this learning is going to be a foundation for the reform of the church, the reading of the Bible by learning languages and study of literature, that this can all be in the service of reforming the church. And Zwingli's thrilled by this idea. He's absolutely intoxicated by it. And Erasmus becomes his hero. So from an, uh, when he's a priest in, in the 1510s, he takes up learning Greek and then eventually 
eventually takes up learning Hebrew and he becomes a brilliantly educated person in, in Greek and Roman classical literature, which again shapes him. He's a wonderful writer. He's a beautiful stylist. He, he writes poetry. He's a great artist. You know, one way you can compare him with Calvin. Zwingli is a real artist. He's a poet. He's a musician. Calvin was not really those things. So, but these artistic qualities are very much the way in which he expresses his own theological thought. He is, he, he, he has that uh, elevated uh, sense of the beautiful, which comes through in his liturgy and in his theology and in his writings. And Erasmus is this major figure. Then, you know, to, to pinpoint, he moves to being a preacher at a Benedictine abbey, and he has a conversion experience of mm. some sort. We don't really know because he describes it, but quite briefly. But he has this conversion experience to believing, this is around 1516, that the gospel is the true source of the faith. And here, you, this may sound very close to Luther, but it's 1516. It's actually a year before the 95 theses. This is another debate, the relationship between the two. But Swingley's having this rapid spiritual development. He's not a Protestant reformer yet, but he's absolutely committed to Scripture. And he's been taught by Erasmus to study the Scriptures in Greek and in Hebrew. And he devotes himself to this. And he starts something quite radical. He says, as a priest, I'm not going to just preach from the lectionary, which is the set readings for the day or the season of the year. I'm going to begin by beginning at the start of, of a book and preach the whole way through what we know as lectio continua. So, and, and this, so he's this commitment to scripture. And then he becomes a notable preacher. Then he gets summoned to Zurich in 1519. And the first thing he does is when he gets into the pulpit, he stands up and says, I am going to begin at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to preach right through the book. Mm. He becomes a great preacher. So this is the next development. But I, I, you know, I could talk about this where I'll, I'll stop. But, but, but what I really want to emphasize is that this is a life that is constantly being driven by new discoveries and new events, many of which he doesn't have control over. So this is you're seeing this kind of fast forward development of a person whose ideas we can see evolving, often in controversy and and conflict. But very rapidly, very rapidly, and I think this is this is the remarkable part of the story that this whole new conception of a church and and a system of of faith takes takes shape um, extraordinarily quickly. Bruce, do you think? I mean, thank you for that. I mean, that that's a very helpful um, look because, as you mentioned, the the rapid pace is. It's just astonishing how quickly this is this is happening. It makes me wonder, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, he is preaching. This is fairly early on, and uh, as you mentioned, he's he's experiencing what some might call his own conversion. But uh, he's also, as he's preaching, he seems to be developing his what will become what we now might call his Protestant uh, understanding of everything from theology itself to the preaching to uh, well eventually even the Lord's Supper is it is it fair to say that 
since he begins preaching so early that much of the reform is not just it's not just Zwingli instituting reform in the controversy of his day, but is he himself undergoing a reform as he preaches? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely uh, a helpful way of thinking about it. He is from his early years. Uh, we don't know that much about his early years as a priest, but we do know from re- records of his students who wrote letters later. He was a teacher, so as a as a priest, he he brought uh, generally young men into his home and he taught them Latin and Greek, and and many of them went off to university and remembered him as a great teacher. But he was a teacher and a preacher from from an early stage, and the preaching, which he did. Um, from early in his career, when he was a pastor, you know, accompanying the armies gone into Italy, when he goes to the when he goes to this Benedictine uh, Abbey uh, Einsiedel in in 1516, his job is to preach to the pilgrims who come to this this abbey. It was a pilgrimage site, so he becomes famous as a preacher, and that's what that's what leads to him being called to Zurich. They want to have this great preacher, and he starts. His, as I mentioned before, his career in Zurich through as the most prominent preacher in the city. So, and and preaching, which he would have done probably about five times a week, is where he became this public voice of of reform. And it was from the pulpit that his ideas uh, evolved. The and the central idea of which is his emphasis on the reform of the whole community. So that the reform means the transformation of a society more into the kingdom of God, that it increasingly becomes the image of that kingdom. So that means social reform, it means care of the poor, it means getting rid of political corruption, it means uh, people hearing the word of God, it means people uh, you know, building uh, the, the piety of the, of the family in, in the household. It's, a, it's this vision which we can see him evolving in, which is this, this conversion to this idea that the kingdom of God is not in this world, but that this world can increasingly move towards that realization of God's God's justice, and we can see through his 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 preaching, but also his other activities, that he is a work in process. He is he is his ideas are evolving, his his spiritual world is evolving, as we said already in rapid uh, succession. But he is he is developing as 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 he's as he's doing this, and the sermons are absolutely at the heart of that development. Mm. Mm. You know, the closer we get to the 1520s, um, and, and not just the you know not just 1520 itself, but 1523 in particular, um, it seems like there. Be, uh, it, it's even hard to describe, right? There's this. I don't know if rupture is is maybe too uh, harsh of a word, but there seems to be somewhat of a parting of paths between Zwingli. And Erasmus, and it, it's you can almost sense the painfulness of it at times, because, yeah. uh, like you mentioned, here you have Zwingli incredibly indebted. Uh, I mean, so much of who he becomes, and how how quickly he's becoming this preacher. Well, 
it's entirely indebted to so many of the the tools that he gained um, from not just Erasmus, but I suppose uh, the entire uh, humanist um, method yeah. and approach that that Zwingli yeah. breathes in and uh, very young. And uh, you mentioned it a minute ago. I mean, everything from uh, just his talent as a musician to his talent as a poet, but then also his writing. Um, you see it that you see it blossom in his writing to his rhetorical abilities. He's very moving in the yeah. pulpit, very persuasive and very powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is going to play a significant role, as you mentioned, because he's not just. Uh, preaching about a particular doctrine or a particular text, but he's also mm-hmm. drawing out uh, what he thinks are the implications then for reform in society at large. But uh, when we start to inch up to 1522, 1523, 1524, uh, it, it's almost too, you can't hide it anymore. There seems to be um, these differences between Erasmus and Zwingli can you explain, mm-hmm. I mean, from Zwingli's own point of view, perhaps, why does this occur and why um, why is it that there's this uh, wound, if we could use that, that word, that begins to develop mm-hmm. and in some sense is almost mm-hmm. inevitable as Zwingli begins yeah. to take humanist tools but to apply them for his Reformation cause? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. In some ways, it's a very sad story. Um, uh, Zwingli never loses his enormous admiration for, for Erasmus. He never ceases to credit Erasmus as his great mentor. Erasmus um, ends the, the relationship essentially because Zwingli has done what Erasmus simply cannot accept and that he has taken these tools, as you've said, uh, this commitment to Christian learning and the centrality of the gospel. And although Swingley said many things with which Erasmus could agree, what he could never agree to was when Swingley breaks with the Catholic Church, which Swingley comes to the point in really in 15 end of 1522-1523, where he sees that there is no way forward within the the Catholic Church. He doesn't quite have Luther's sense of antichrist, but he does believe that the the hierarchical church is in it is impossible to uh, have meaningful reform, that it is never going to embrace the gospel as the heart of, of the faith. And he realizes that there's going to have to be a, a break um, at that point. And he writes a series of works in which he says that the true teaching of the church, he rejects the mass, he rejects the intercession of the saints, he, ascent, he rejects as the essential you know, sacrificial nature of the Catholic priesthood. And at that point, uh, Erasmus can never, I mean, and it was inevitable, but Erasmus couldn't, couldn't mm-hmm. agree with this. And, you know, as a result, um, uh, uh, Erasmus started to, to distance himself from Zwingli. Zwingli kept writing to him. He kept trying to keep this open. And in fact, he invites Erasmus to come 
and live in, in Zurich, uh, Erasmus declines. He makes the famous statement, I am a citizen of the world. He's not going to, to come to Zurich. But Zwilling has this great hope that the Erasmus even would come there. Uh, and he has this hope that perhaps even Erasmus could be converted to or could embrace the cause. But but Erasmus is not. He also begins to suspect that what Zwingli is saying is very much in line with Luther. And of course, Erasmus and Luther by 1524 are having this fierce and very public dispute. He thinks Zwingli is, is supporting Luther and not him. And so uh, the, the relationship uh, breaks down and Erasmus ceases contact. Uh, although after their relationship comes to an end, Zwingli continues to say basically what I have learned, I have learned from Erasmus. And Zwingli honestly believed that much of what he taught was there in Erasmus. His disappointment was not with what Erasmus had been teaching, but he felt that the man himself was unprepared to take the necessary next step. Erasmus, for him, his part, believed that Zwingli had stepped too far. He had broken the church. And for that, um, there could be no reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So there are two, two, in some ways, quite different people, but people who share very close ideals but the event of breaking the church made their friendship uh, no longer possible. You know, speaking of, of this break, um, it's, it's during this time as well that we have a Zwingli who is engaging, you think of um, 1523, I think with the second disputation Uh, here we have again, very rapid, uh, but Zwingli is working laboring to persuade the powers that be to uh, embrace and to make even uh, some some bold steps to instituting reform. Yeah. Uh, and eventually it does take place. What's so, mm-hmm. um, you know, we just mentioned Erasmus and how Erasmus looks at Zwingli and essentially says, that's too far. I, I, I won't go as far as you, you are going. At the same time, though, Zwingli seems to experience opposition from others in his ranks who don't think he's going far enough. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, just to take one example, there's probably many we could point to. Um, Conrad Grebel, who is, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's hard to sum up their uh, dispute, but essentially he is dissatisfied with with Zwingli because he wants a new church, but one that's not going to involve the civil authorities. Um, yeah. That's only going to be characterized by upright believers, or, or we probably should say separate, separate believers to put, to, to emphasize yeah. his understanding of a, of a church that's, that's holy. Can you shed light on this? Because um, it might be confusing, I suppose. You know, our day is so different. But in in Zwingli's day, he's not a soft voice. (laughs) Uh, He is quite adamant and bold and and loud, uh, intentionally so, in order to push through reform. But he does believe that this reform must come through uh, the civil authorities, which creates yeah. this divide. What? How big is this yeah. Yeah. controversy, and why yeah. does it create yeah. uh, different parties? Yeah, it's 
it's huge and it's a defining moment of the of the reformation because ultimately what comes out of this is two very different views of the question what is the church and so but it's a deeply personal story you mentioned conrad grable and there's this you know people like felix mans and and others these people were close friends they were these were the people who gathered around Swingley when he came to Zurich. They were enthralled by his sermons. They were helping him with his writings, but they were meeting in houses to read the gospel. They had these reading circles that were spreading through the city where people would get together and and read scripture and other and others are reform minded. So these are people who knew each other very well. You know, you have to imagine these are your close friends. These are people who you believe are are committed with you to this most important cause mm. but then it splits for the reason that you suggest uh, on the one hand Erasmus and the Catholics and, and many people are nervous that Zwingli is pushing things too too quickly but these people um, are these these friends say hold on you are saying that uh, that uh, ultimate authority for the reform of the church is not in the hands of the bishops and the popes and the Catholic hierarchy, but you're placing it in the hands of the civil magistrates, the lay authority. You are saying that they are head of the church and that they should determine the pace of reform. Well, we're not certain about that because we're not certain that civil government is actually Christian because it has very different, you know, uh, priorities than simply, you know, guiding the church. So that's one point. But then, in perhaps, you know, more more tragically and more more fiercely, they say, "Hold on, Zwingli, you're uh, advocating certain things that we can't find in Scripture." And the most famous uh, of these, of course, is that Zwingli after originally questioning it, uh, then says, we will retain infant baptism. Oh. And, and that, that is the, you know, one of the most significant moments of the early Reformation for a variety of reasons. First of all, they, his, his friends say, well, you told us that it's scripture, that scripture alone is the foundation of the church and of the faith. But where in scripture is warrant for baptizing infants. Mm. We don't see it. The big question is here, who is interpreting scripture? Who has the voice to say what scripture actually says? And what about this question of where scripture appears to be silent on a certain issue? And Zwingli is actually, um, because the magistrates were not prepared to, to do away with infant baptism, Zwingli defends it. And he will, out of this uh, debate, come up with his own uh, theology of the covenant, which becomes so defining to the Reformed tradition. That debate with those who reject the idea of infant baptism. But it's it, the whole question that's evolving with is, is who is the church? And you, it's, as you mentioned, is the church, as Zwingli argues, the whole community, which is both believers and non-believers, the whole visible community is the church, as he will say, because he's looking at the whole society as the visible church to be reformed. They are saying, no, 
The church is those who are the true believers, and they must separate themselves off from the sinful to create a pure body of Christ. Now, there are many different views that kind of go in between these, but the split is, and it's like, it's, you know, for those who are familiar with church history, it's like Augustine with the Donatists in North (laughs) Africa. And they do identify with this debate. Is the church the mixed community? Or is the church those who withdraw from, you know, civil civil authority and government who have what we would call believer's baptism as marking a pure body of the church? And so from out of this circle of friends who were so committed together, you get this profound split about what the church should be and what the reform should be. They're also deeply critical that Zwingli's not pushing forward these reforms. They say, look, it's in Scripture. We should have no images of God. We should strip the churches of all these images. We should tear down these crucifixes and these idolatrous things. Why are you not doing that? And Zwingli says, well, we can't do it until the magistrates are ready to have it done properly. And they're saying, that's not for the magistrates to decide. That's the Bible tells us these that idolatry must be eradicated, and therefore we need to do it now. Mm. And so, on a whole range of of issues, they're saying Zwingli is compromising himself by tying everything to these, you know, possibly godless magistrates, and and denying the very thing that he told them they were supposed to do, which was follow the Bible. So from his side, he sees them as having corrupted the word of God and going in ways that are, are wrong. From their side, they see him as betraying the movement that he actually started. Yeah. And a major part of this is that this is a fight within family. And one of the reasons it becomes so vicious, as you know, as we all know, family fights can, is because it's so deeply personal. Yes. But to, to address your other question, on many points, such as the teaching on the Lord's Supper, they're actually very close to each other. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes with the people you're closest to, you can have the most um, acrimonious debates. Mm-hmm. You know, since you mentioned baptism and the Lord's Supper, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, these are uh, debates that are occurring uh, not just between reformers, but with within their own family, and it is catastrophic on the one hand because, I mean, you, I, I don't think that's an overstatement you made when you said that uh, this becomes a pivotal moment, uh, a turning point even in uh, the Swiss Reformation, uh, yeah. and I think that Zwingli, uh, you know. His his appeal at this point, well, his appeal to the magistrates at this point, uh, well, I think he understands to some degree, uh, or at least he believes to some degree, that if the Reformation is going to be pushed through, if it's going to be success, yeah. it's going to rise or fall on these uh, on these civil authorities. And uh, yeah, you know, behind this is not just an understanding of. Um, say, the civil authorities themselves, but also their doctrine of the church. And behind that sits mm-hmm. an entire mm-hmm. understanding of, well, what is Scripture? How do we how do we use Scripture? Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. it a minute ago. I, I suppose we should just uh, bring this out for a minute, is uh, when Zwingli is responding, he begins to appeal to the covenant. And, um, well, 
much of Zwingli's life and his theology is coming out of his understanding of the Old Testament, for example. But mm-hmm. uh, this mm-hmm. idea of the covenant is quite essential. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that it's so essential that even though Zwingli dies so young, the Reformed tradition that follows, well, this becomes uh, a pillar in not just yeah. their debates over believers or infant baptism, but an actual defining uh, mark of, of their theology. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by 1525, uh, which is the year in which the Zurich, uh, with the city of Zurich, formally breaks from from the Catholic Church, the the, the mass is abolished. This new reformed service of the Lord's Supper is introduced. Uh, the bishop no longer has any authority over the city. Um, so this dramatic moment of a break, which comes in uh, Easter 1525, is followed by the emergence of Zwingli's thinking about the covenant, which comes at just exactly as you say, out of his reading of the Old Testament. The Old Testament provides Zwingli with crucial models for for various things. One is, we've talked about his relationship with political authority, but for him, the model of that is the relationship between the prophet and the king in ancient Israel, that the two are bound together. They have separate tasks. The ruler is to, of course, administer the state, but is also responsible for the preservation of the faith. The prophet, of course, is to preach the word of God. So the, you know this this that model is comes out of the Old Testament, but also um, it does come out, as I've already suggested, out of his this debate that he has with those who become known as the Anabaptists, those who who baptize again. Uh, Zwingli backed the persecution of these people. So this is as I as I noted on various occasions, where the Reformation becomes violent, he actually sanctions that the magistrates should put to death these these uh, radicals. So it's, that's another defining moment in the Reformation. But from 1525 onwards, he's now thinking about the relationship between the church, the visible church in the world, as a covenantal relationship yeah. with Church, of course, 
Many are not, are not believers. Many are, are not faithful, but they are part of the visible expression of the church. The faithful, the sheep and the goats, or the faithful and the non-faithful, will be separated by God at the last day. But in this world, they, are, they form the visible body of Christ and it is the rule and and it is the rule of the clergy and the rulers to as far as possible to transform that body as much as possible into the image of of the uh, invisible church but that will always be a work in progress and never and never complete and that visible body exists in a covenantal relationship with God in which of course there are reciprocal obligations so one of the distinctive things about Zwingli and the formation of the reform tradition is that, you know, one could say in, in contrast to Luther, who is so uh, focused on justification, the act of, of us being justified uh, in, in Christ through faith, Zwingli accepts that, but his emphasis is much, much more, as Calvin's will be, on sanctification, the transformation in this world into the image of Christ, the daily life of the community, the, the outward expression of, of the Christian faith in the community. That's where he spends almost, and this goes back to the issue of preaching, where he sees preaching as part of this, this daily application of the word of God to the transformation of the, both the individual and the community in this covenantal relationship. So that emphasis on, you know, what we refer to as sanctification or the creation of the sacred community, that's where the focus is. And that becomes a hallmark of the Reformed tradition. And it really comes out of, out of uh, Zwingli's uh, covenantal ideas, which are, as you said before, very much drawn from the way in which he reads the Old Testament as not just, not in Luther's terms of kind of law and gospel, but in a much more positive way in which the Old Testament is a model which is fulfilled by uh, uh, the Christian faith rather than in some ways being, being overcome by it. Mm. Now, we've mentioned the Old Testament and some of the contrast here between Luther and Zwingli, but I suppose we should also just briefly mention the New Testament because the differences between a Luther and a Zwingli become all the more apparent when they begin interpreting, say, Paul in the New Testament and the Lord's Supper. Yeah. I mean, this really is— yeah. we. I, we have to address this because this is <laughs> the elephant in the room, isn't it? Uh, what exactly mm-hmm. – uh, there's so much that we could say in terms of – I mean, e- even just nationally, right, the the different um, locations that they are living in, uh, the, their background yeah. and how all of that contributes to it. But what would you say from your – you know, with all of your insight into Zwingli here, maybe from Zwingli's perspective, as he comes into this yeah. colossal – uh, clash that it's an explosion mm-hmm. with Luther over their differences on the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is the at the at the core of it? Right, right. I think it, at the core of it is two very different views of how God is present in the world, and 
the words where Christ says, this is my body, and they come to radically different conclusions. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the old textbooks tell you that, you know, Zwingli has this bare memorialism and Luther has this idea of, of uh, you know, the, the, the real presence of this. That just, that just doesn't do justice to mm-hmm. what either one of them thought. Uh, there is no bare memorialism in Zwingli. This is, this is the age old. I mean, it's one of the reasons why to go back to your first question, people have Zwingli has disappeared. People think he has this idiotic version of the, the upper, which definitely Calvin rescues and turns into something much better. This is just the, the longstanding uh, urban myth that just isn't true. Zwingli has a, a deep, whatever you, whatever you think of it, Zwingli has a very profound and almost mystical view of the Lord's Supper. He believes, in contrast to, to Luther, that there, and this is an idea he gets from Erasmus, his teaching on the Lord's Supper is very close to Erasmus, and that is based around the separation of the material and the spiritual. Mm-hmm. And for what drives Zwingli is, and, and it goes to the root of what he thinks is of idolatry, is human efforts to, um, to put it kind of crudely, to turn God into the material, to try and capture God in what is material, because Cal, or Zwingli has this profound sense of the deep spiritual nature of, of God and of the faith. And therefore, any attempt to kind of put God in a box, to use an expression that he is, 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 is idolatrous. Mm. And that's, of course, why he still objects to the Mass, because he thinks it's idolatrous. It's, it's, it's putting Christ into, into you know, bread and the wine and confusing for him the divine and the human or the spiritual and the material. And this may seem like a small point to us, but for him, it's one of the most uh, profound things. But to, to, it's, it's such a corruption of the spiritual to reduce it to this. But he still thinks that there, he still believes that there is an intimate connection between the two. You just have to understand how they are truly related, not um, that there is no relationship between them, and that they are truly related in that the uh, the material objects, in this case, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, are symbols of the spiritual. That doesn't mean they're just something separate, but it, but they are part of a symbolic understanding of the world where these material things are are representations of of the divine, but they are not themselves. And and where this becomes is is pursuingly very spiritual is that these symbols are because we are created persons. We are people who live in the created world. We that's who we are as humans. We need these symbols as ways of feeding our faith. So that when we look on the bread and the wine and when we tear the bread and we eat it and when we drink the wine or juice, the tradition I grew up in, you're not consuming Christ, but that these outer symbols feed our faith. And for, for Zwingli, um, this is captured in the idea of memory. 
memoria. And memory is not, and this is where he, he gets, I think, so badly misunderstood. Memory is just not, oh, I remember the Passover or I remember the story from, from the, you know, the Last Supper. From, it's not remembering in some sort of, you know, like you remembered you had an appointment last week. It's memory in the true sense of that you are transformed into that which you recall. It's like a platonic idea, but it's a, a notion of being transformed into that past so that that past moment of the Lord's Supper, of the Last Supper, becomes now. So it's, it's a kind of deeply mystical idea of the Lord's Supper, which is, I think people have often not understood in Zwingli. And so Luther, of course, in some ways is approaching the same thing, but he believes that there is a physical presence, that, um, that Zwingli is denying that Christ says, this is my body. Mm. He really did. And Luther says, we can't explain that. We don't know how it happens, but it is, we, there is a physical uh, feeding. So they are both absolutely passionate yeah. about the relationship between Christ and the believer, through the sacrament, they both. The reason it's so fierce is because it's so important to both of them, yeah. and they're both wanting to say that we have communion with Christ in this, but they come at it from very different understandings of how that can possibly be. Mm. Now that gets tied up in all sorts of political and personal questions, which makes it fierce and hostile and and pretty ugly. But underneath it, there is a theological difference, which is rooted in the idea that both want to talk about how we are connected to the divine, but they come at it from two quite different perspectives. And, you know, you can't just get together at Marburg in 1529 and come up with some fancy language that just covers over <laughs> this. These are two very different. These yeah. are two very different ways which come out of, you know, the emergence of Protestantism and you know, and in many ways to this day, you can't by any kind of magic turn them into the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, Bruce, we started the podcast and you hinted at this, the the fact that Zwingli is a very complicated figure and perhaps, uh, you know, he's lost into the shadows at, at times because of the way he dies. A very controversial death, not just in his time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in, in the aftermath of his death, it creates uh, yeah. quite a predicament for the church, yeah. uh, the civil authorities. I mean, even when they begin looking for his successor, uh, it, in many ways it's defined by how that person will or will not <laughs> carry on the same exact legacy um, yeah. of Zwingli, even to the point of dying on the battlefield. So all that to say yeah. is we end the podcast here. I want to give you the last word here because I think for, you know, here we are living in, uh, you know, after modernity, uh, we are living in a very different context, a very different political context uh, in, yeah. in terms of our experience with um, the state. What is going through Zwingli's mind? Help us understand why – why does he end up on a battlefield? Um, yeah. Why does he think this is worth my life? And he's thinking yeah. not not merely in terms of uh, what we would call politics today, but he is he's also thinking in terms of himself as a reformer. 
what is yeah. happening um, in his own mind, yeah. especially considering, you know, you mentioned this at the beginning, some of his background. Uh, he, he's very familiar at a very young age with the mercenary trade, uh, yeah. the, the mercenary yeah. service. And yeah. um, it seems as if, you know, early on there, there could be a type of pacifism, but then that begins to yeah. change as he starts to think through the complicated yeah. Uh, political yeah. controversies of his day. So let me throw this back yeah. to you for the final word. It's troubling. It's difficult, and I can tell you, it's difficult for a biographer to try and try and make <laughs> sense of because there's so many. Because there's a combination of conviction, but also personality uh, yeah. here. Um, so there's many different things. But my 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 brief take on this is that uh, Zwingli uh, sees the visible church the visible community as this is this is this is the the focus of it he sees that community constantly uh, charged with spreading the gospel and he sees himself as charged as a prophet with preaching and spreading the gospel and it may sound naive to us but he had an absolute conviction that if people simply heard the word of god they would be converted and so therefore, when he looked at these Catholic states within the Swiss Confederation, where we were absolutely hostile to the Reformation and would put to death those who preached the gospel and were and saw uh, Zwingli as, as Antichrist and arch heretic whom they would happily kill if they could possibly do it, um, he saw these Catholic authorities as holding their people hostage. They were preventing these people from hearing the word. And as the conflict escalates over the 1520s, he comes to believe that the only way this impasse is going to be broken is for is, is the use of force. And he comes out of a militarized society, and the irony is, yes, he's traumatized by the mercenary service, but he, he does... Uh, come to believe that force is going to be necessary to promote the gospel. Now, that's a very difficult idea for, for us today, given all the things that we have seen and experienced and know. We hear now about a Russian invasion of Ukraine and that Putin is convinced that this is Russia's holy duty to reclaim Kiev and, and Ukraine. So, you know, we see this and, you know, it becomes very difficult for us to. But the, the truth is, he believed that this is part of the covenantal relationship, that they, they were called to spread the gospel, and he believes that military force is going to be necessary. Reluctantly, unfortunately, but it's a reality, and that you're going to have to break these Catholic rulers who are preventing their people from hearing the gospel. And it's only if they can be defeated that the people will have access to the Bible, which will convert them. So it's a, it's a combination of, of a kind of ruthless pragmatism with a great idealism. And that is who Swingley is. He's a person of powerful impulses, often competing impulses. And that's the situation he gets himself to at the end of the 1520s, when he makes, well, what uh, you know, I say in, in the book, is a fairly disastrous decision to back war. 
because the city of Zurich is not ready for it. It's not strong enough. The allies are not committed to supporting. He rolls the dice in a very bad situation and the whole thing unwinds disastrously. Mm. And, and when he dies, many people in Zurich rise up in, in great anger saying, who are these clergy that led us into a war that we never wanted? Wow. Uh, we shall never have this thing where you know, religious people are telling us or bringing on this, this kind of war. And there's a huge reaction against Wingley. And again, it, it looks possible that the city of Zurich will re-embrace Catholicism. Uh, that's why, as you say, the figure of Heinrich Bullinger comes in and he has to create a new relationship that that actually preserves the Reformation. But it's a close-run thing. It could easily have completely, uh, because Zwingli's defeat and death and the defeat, the humiliating defeat of, of Zurich very nearly ended the Reformation there. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.